Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, you've joined us as we're going through the book of Revelation, and we're still in the letters. We're in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, the church of Philadelphia. Amen. And uh, uh, one of our elders, Dan, is not here this morning. He's on his way to Philadelphia. I thought that was quite a coincidence. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? It's chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, and who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we've been going on this circular route through these churches that were in what is now Turkey. And the city we are at now is the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love. And it's with each letter, the messenger of the church that, that speaks that particular week is addressed as the recipient of the letter. So it refers to him as the, the elder or the angel. The angel, the word angelos means a messenger. So um, some, some people believe that there's actually an angel that uh, was over that church and that the letter would go to him. However, I think it's more likely we interpret that as the messenger, meaning the one who was to speak that Sunday, as I don't believe angels need things written down for them. <laughs> they, they could deliver it without a, a scroll. Um, so this city, Philadelphia, was the youngest of these seven cities, was the newest. It sat on an 800-foot-high hill overlooking the road that was the gateway to the Hermas Valley and up to the central plain. It was named after its founder, Atlas II. And Atlas demonstrated a very strong love for his brother, and thus it became the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. 
It was the center of Greek culture at that time, and it was so successful in spreading the Greek culture and the Greek language that it completely uh, erased the local language that was before uh, the Ludians. And like most of these cities that are addressed, this city had a very strong connection with the Roman Empire. Jesus used a unique self-description that has to do with the message. It's a description that goes beyond those mentioned in chapter one. At the beginning of each of the letters, we have this description and usually it's repeated. However, this description goes a little step further than what we saw in chapter one. Verse seven again, and to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, these words of the, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. Jesus says he is the Holy One. You know, during his ministry, the demons recognized him as such. One demon cried out saying, I know who you are. Actually, he said, we know who you are because it was legion. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Peter declared Jesus to be the Holy One of God in John 6, 69. The Holy One of Israel in the Old Testament is the Lord God. Holy, the word holy, I think we need uh, some help understanding it because we think of it as uh, pure, that's true. It technically meant in Scripture, set apart for God, that's also true. But it also has this sense of otherness, not of this world, above and higher and separated from. We say Jesus is, is transcendent. God is transcendent. He's above and over all of, the, of creation. He was before creation. And try this, he was before there was space. <sighs> Okay, for eternity, he is. He is the I am. So that's, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's right here with us, with each of us. He's present. He's Yahweh Shema, the Lord who is with us. Jesus is not just any man. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning, meaning Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim, God's plural, created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was there as the instrument of creation. He was the word. Everything came in existence through the word. And John says, all things were made by him, John 1.3. He's not a created being. He is the pure, the undefiled, other, holy creator. Jesus also referred to himself here as the true one. Once again, we have this divine description. As the scriptures declare in Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. John recorded in his gospel that Jesus told us he is the way and the truth and the life. We have our perceptions of truth. You know, we... Uh, 
where as we enter into Revelation, everybody has their idea of the true interpretation of Revelation. I have the truth. Jesus is the truth. He alone is the truth. A lie is evil because it's inconsistent with who he is, the holy and true one. He is true in the sense of being the authentic thing. The world and its deceptions are passing and often just an illusion, promising what, they, what it can't deliver. But Jesus is the real one, the true one, the eternal one. These are divine attributes that Jesus is using to describe himself, which declares his deity. In addition, Christ and his people stand as the true Jewish witness, in contrast with those who say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Verse 9, by saying that Jesus is a false Messiah and that his, that his followers are false Israelites. The third description lines up with chapter one, the description in chapter one, Jesus is the one who holds the key of David, which is actually a partial quotation from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. In the first chapter, the keys of, that Jesus has said to possess are the keys of death and Hades. Keys represent authority. The one who possesses the keys has authority. Even today, you know, in a landlord-tenant situation, that if the tenant has the keys, they have particular rights. King David was the greatest king of Israel, and to have the rights of the greatest king and those rights being over death and Hades or the abode of the dead means that Jesus has the authority over the grave and over judgment. And this is affirmed in other scriptures as well. Before he ascended, he said, all authority and on heaven and on earth is given to me. With those keys, Jesus can open and no one can, no one can shut. His decisions are final decisions. What did the description mean to the Church of Philadelphia? It meant that Jesus was completely trustworthy. What is your trust placed in? I think for most people, it's myself, right? I, I can get out of this. I can figure out what to do. Uh, I'm pretty smart. I can, or I know friends I could look to. Maybe it's friends but Jesus is the ultimate one to look to for truth. Some people claim to be faithful and true, but only Jesus can make the claim and consistently live up to it. Like Smyrna, they had nothing for which Jesus was to rebuke them. This church represented Jesus as a holy example to that city, and certainly they were sinners, like all men and women, but there's no glaring sin in which the church as a whole was compromising. What he's about to tell them is true and it's completely dependable. His possession of the keys says they can trust him with their lives and in their death. 
They can count on what he says. If he has opened a door for them, all the forces in the world and the spiritual realm cannot shut it. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Many of the letters begin with the obvious fact that Jesus knows their works, but then he goes on to tell them how they're incomplete or how they're not inspired, but he knows how they're doing. And for some of the churches, it was encouragement, but for many of them, it was all, uh, a little warning. But for Smyrna and Philadelphia, it was only encouragement because it came out of hearts that were seeking to do God's will at the leading of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus began to address you by saying, I know your works, would you be in, in dread or would you be comforted? With that divine and kingly authority that belongs to Jesus, he tells the church that he has opened a door for them. We don't know what that was, but, but when they heard it, they must have understood. I think they, they got the message, of course. It may have been an opportunity of, to evangelize the central plateau. The New Testament uses the phrase an open door in relationship with the opportunity to be a witness. Acts 14, 27 is one example. We know from Ephesians 2, 10 that God has prepared in advance good works for each of us to do. Because God is outside of time, he can see who will be fit for service in the place where they can advance the kingdom of God as they yield to the Holy Spirit. I think of this when, when we might ask ourselves, you know, why aren't we seeing more souls saved or more coming to Christ? God places the lambs where they're going to be faithfully fed. If you want to see more people come to the Lord, learn to obey the Holy Spirit and be the person that he can use, holy, focused on him, knowing the scriptures, placing him first in everything, because doing comes out of being. If, if he sees that you're ready to disciple a sheep, guess what? He's going to send a sheep for you to disciple. If our heart is wholly devoted to the Lord and sensitive to his spirit, if we've prepared ourselves by renewing our minds with the word of God, then the sheep who are hungry will be sent to us to grow and learn from. At Wayside Chapel, you know, we've had... A, through the years that I've been here, we've had a number of interesting, different doors open to us um, because we were cooperating with the Holy Spirit in being the people God called us to be. God uniquely equipped us and placed us here in the center of the New Age community. I love it. Some people, you know, sometimes they have a pastor visit and say, how do you, how do, you do it here? It's so dark and depressing. And I say, I love it. <laughs> it's the front lines, man. This is, this is where the seekers come, trying to figure out what's true. Could we have been 
Could we have given more and been more ready for more? Of course. This applies to us individually and as a church in each of our lives. What has God prepared you for? What is he preparing you for in the future? I was just talking to somebody yesterday about how you can look in your past and see those, those big changes in your life that God did, those encounters with God and difficulties and trials and victories, and you can kind of see where God's leading you, what the plan he has for your life, how he's going to use you. Our hearts should always long to become all that God intends us to be. That should, that should be the desire of every Christian's heart. It's God, what are you calling me to? What do you want me to be? How are you changing me? What's the, where are you leading me? Am I, do I need to change anything? Do I need to make some, uh, turn a little to the right or the left? Or do I need to be in the word more? Do I need to be in more prayer? We should always be saying, God, what do you, what do you want in my life now that would be pleasing to you. And then he prepares us and works through us with those opportunities that he prepared in advance. Jesus said that he was aware of their limited power. Certainly this can't mean spiritual power because if you have Jesus, you have all the power you need. Any person in Christ and Christ are a majority. Okay, you've got it all when you've got Jesus. So I don't think he's talking about spiritual power being limited. I think he's talking about this community being um, uh, a, a community that doesn't have uh, the upper echelon of society in it. In other words, these are the common people, the laborers, the the, the slaves that gather together to worship. So they don't have a influence, a big influence on the culture of the city of Philadelphia, but man, these people are faithful. It's, it, it's a disadvantage and it's an advantage. It's a disadvantage in that it's harder to change the culture of the town and, and move the leadership, but it's an advantage that in that most of the town are like them. So it's easier to communicate the gospel and they can relate to them better. They only had a little power but they had kept Jesus' word and had not denied his name. It was a no-compromise church. They received the words of Jesus and they clung to them. Kept, they kept to the word, means they continued to have in their possession, it means to obey also. So the, the word's a little broader than we think of it in English. It's to have it, but also to obey it. They were living in obedience to the word of Jesus. You know, sometimes people say, well, Jesus doesn't speak to me. You better believe he does. <laughs> Here's a whole book full of him speaking to us. You just need to read it and let it speak to your heart. They didn't deny Jesus' name. Jesus is Lord. That's what his name was. They had not succumbed to the pressure to worship Caesar, nor had they denied Jesus' name by the way that they lived. Their godly testimony 
was a witness in that town. Both our words and our example are involved in not denying his name. I can deny him by the words that I speak. I can deny him by the way that I behave. But it also can honor his name by the words I speak and how I obey him. There's so many today who mock Christianity with the label hypocrite, and sometimes it is deserved. But sadly, many, it's often deserved. We can deny the name of Jesus with our ungodly behavior and give them an excuse. You know, the enemy loves to point out uh, hypocrisy in the church because it's like, oh, it gives them a reason not to come. On the other hand, maybe it's an opportunity to say, I'm just like you. I need Jesus, and you need him too. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. We saw the term that synagogue of Satan before in the letter to the church of Smyrna. Paul told us that in Romans 2, 28 and 29, no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He taught that a Jew is a child of faith because Abraham is the father of faith. The church of Philadelphia, I think, was wounded deeply by the insults from the Jews in that city. In the latter half of the first century, the Jews were persecuting the church. And the opposite is going to be true in later centuries where the church persecutes the Jews. But during the time of this letter from Jesus, the local synagogue often tried to persecute or, or get the church in trouble with the government. There would be a natural resentment when, when Jews converted to Christianity, along with a desire for, to, for retaliation. The synagogue must have been claiming that God really loved them because they could prove their lineage from Abraham and that God was not pleased with the Christians because it included Gentiles. Jesus promised to humble those Jews who were not circumcised in heart. They would soon be coming to bow before the feet of those in the church that made up the church. Now, we don't have any historical record of this taking place, um, but I'm sure it, it would have in its time. You know, sometimes the psalmist prayed that God would vindicate them in the sight of his enemies. There are times in life when, when God does that. Other times, it doesn't happen until judgment. It's encouraging when vindication comes in this life. Church of Philadelphia must have needed the encouragement. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
They had listened to the Spirit. They had patiently endured hardship that the believers faced in Philadelphia. It was because of that patient endurance and obedience to Jesus that they would be spared whatever this was that was coming. And we can only speculate about it. Um, what it's referring to, it may have been the persecution of Domitian around the time that this letter was written. Some people would say it's about the pre-tribulation rapture. Well, I, I think there's a number of other verses that would be more applicable, but the original recipients would not have taken it that way, and if they did, they would have misunderstood it because the rapture didn't happen during the time of that church. The original meaning had something to do with trouble in their day. And we can take a lesson from it that God is able to keep us from our hour of trial. If we, like this church, are focused on being the people God has called us to be, then we may also be delivered from trying times in our world. You know, years ago, there was this big economic downturn. I can't remember, was it... Uh, when, all, when everybody was selling all the houses they invested in. And I remember people before that uh, who were listening to the Holy Spirit and realized they needed to get out of debt and, and not be encumbered with all that uh, greed that was taking place. And when the downturn happened, they were blessed. They were kept from that hour of trial and others who ignore the warnings lost everything they had. But more important than financial loss is the loss of faith in times of trial. It's in times of trial that we're most tempted to say, God, you've forsaken me. Where are you? How come you're not speaking to me? How come you didn't rescue me from this? But Jesus promises to keep us during those times if we keep his word of patient endurance. God will not always spare us from trials or we would never mature into believers whose roots are deep and who walk in faith. You know that, that uh, what do they call it? The biosphere in Southern Arizona. You know, they tried to make this special environment and it was cut off from the rest of the world and they were gonna have their little, little uh, unique uh, special atmosphere like in there and see if people could live in that thing. And after a while, the trees started falling over because there was no wind. Resistance causes the roots to grow deep to hold the tree in place. That's like trials in our life. They, they make our faith deeper and richer and stronger. It's during times of tribulation that we draw closest to the Lord. Whether God spares you from a trial or you experience it with his presence to help guide you, you can thank the Lord for them. In fact, James tells us to count it all joy because it's going to deepen our faith. That is patient endurance. Complaining and demanding that God rescue you is failure to see that God has put you through the trial to refine you. Unless maybe it's discipline to wake you up from disobedience. That's another story. But that too is a blessing. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. 
Jesus said that he's coming soon in the letter to Pergamum. This book of Revelation concludes with three declarations, I am coming soon in the last chapter. And we've had several people in our congregation who suddenly found their health was not as good as they thought. Life is very fragile. And whether Christ returns tomorrow or a thousand years from now, he's coming soon for each of us because life is short. That's why we must hold fast to what we have. And you know, I, I, I pray a prayer for um, some individuals that I love because we're not in, no longer in contact with each other because of un misunderstandings. But my prayer for them is when the Lord comes to take them home, whether that's the rapture or their death, they are closer to Christ than they have ever been in their life. I like that prayer. I hope people pray it for me. That's where I want to be when he comes for me, closer to him than I ever have been before. We'll be seeing him face to face, and we don't want to be ashamed. We want our entrance into the kingdom of heaven to be richly welcomed, as Peter said in 2 Peter 1.11. His life is short. And eternity is a long, long time. We need to remind ourselves of that fact whenever we face temptations. This is just temporary. Jesus is coming, and it's going to be good forever. The one who would seize the crown is the enemy of our soul. The father of lies doesn't want to see you hold fast to the end. And he'll do anything he's permitted to do to snatch it from you. The crown is your reward for faithfulness. It's one thing of value that you can present to the Lord in gratitude for all that he has done for you. You know, I love the picture in the upcoming chapters where the elders throw their crowns at Jesus' feet. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. It's saying everything. Why? It's all your grace. It's all your power. It's all, it was all your divine will. And you're honoring me with this. No, all the honor goes to you. And Jesus saying, no, I, you, you obeyed. I blessed you here. And they say, no, no, back and forth, back and forth. What a picture of reality that everything good comes from him. God allows Satan to test us to strengthen our faith and to help us mature. But if in the process we submit to the flesh and we quit looking to the promises of God, we find ourselves slipping back into the old life, being faithless toward our Redeemer and Savior. The enemy will snatch that crown of faithfulness the first chance he gets. So hold fast, because it's not going to be long don't let the deceiver steal your crown. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall I go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God, from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So at the end of each letter, there is a promise to the conquerors. These are the ones who hear and obey and hold fast to the end. 
They believe in Jesus' self-descriptions. They overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They hold fast until Jesus comes. And to these, the Lord gives various promises that encourage them to endure the temptations of the flesh. It's to these that Jesus promises to make a pillar in the temple of God, which is, um, now we're talking about apocalyptic literature, so when you get there, you're not gonna turn it into a pillar, okay? <laughs> it means you'll forever be there in the presence of Almighty God, beholding his glory. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. A fixture in the presence of God forever and ever. They'll never need to leave his glorious presence. And as the angels before the throne are overwhelmed again and again and again with the holiness of God, so these who conquer will live in the awestruck wonder of his glory and grace. It's way beyond the realm of our present daily experience. And words are insufficient to describe how wonderful that's gonna be. One day there, again, it's better than, I don't know, a thousand's not enough, a million elsewhere. The conqueror would have, uh, the conqueror will have the name of God and the holy city and Jesus' new name written on him. What does that mean? Jesus is going to get out his tattoo gun and go. <laughs> Slaves in the Roman era, and when this was written, they had their name of their master tattooed on their forehead. And you go, well, that's, that's kind of brutal. Not if you were Caesar's servant. If you were Caesar's servant and you walked into the marketplace, everyone gets out of your way. You got authority. You get first in line. You got privilege. And that's just the Caesar's name. The name on us is the name of our God and the new name of Jesus and the city in which we live. I don't know, that's too much for me to grasp. It gives, when we get there, and I'm speaking to all who overcome by faith in Jesus, everyone will know you belong to Jesus, that you belong there. You'll forever belong in the heavenly city. You'll forever be a servant of the living God. Jesus will honor you with the name of God and his own new name. And I, I, I don't think words can do it justice. I want to share something with you. I wasn't going to share this, but I think it's appropriate here. Sometimes you hear God speak. And you know it's God because it's so overwhelming. 
And I had that happen a couple days ago. I was just doing something, serving him. It was out of my way. I didn't really want to do it, but I know he wanted me to do it. I'm sorry. And I just wanted to please him, just be obedient. And when I did it, I heard. I heard him say, thank you. And it was the most wonderful thing I ever heard. I think what we all long for is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. But I think we can hear it even now when we're just obedient in the little things that need to be done. When we set aside our own will and do what we know he wants us to do. You know, it's forever to, those names are on us will be forever to belong, to finally be home, to be loved beyond measure, to be honored, to be valued, and so much more. It's happily ever after, only a whole lot better. It's to possess joy unspeakable and full of glory without end. It's the longing deep within our hearts beyond our imagination because of the magnitude of it. Verse 13, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church of Philadelphia held fast until the 14th century. That's another 1,300 years. This is a victory story. Do you hear how God can set before a church of little power open doors that no one can shut? Do you hear how he can make those who slander you come and bow at your feet and recognize that you are loved by God? Do you hear how those who keep the word of his patience will be kept in the hour of trial? And do you hear the call to hold fast and not let anyone seize your crown? And finally, do you hear the promise to those who conquer? The wonder of forever being in the presence of God, honored with his name, with the name of New Jerusalem and with Jesus' own new name. Are you listening with your heart? Keep those words. And I pray that we all have ears to hear. Amen? Amen. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song?